Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Rebecca Bradley. Rebecca sits in Foley's Chicago office where she is Director of Professional Development. And I was really excited to get her on the show because as frequent listeners of the podcast know, generally each episode features the path of a current practicing Foley attorney. Now, Rebecca is actually a former practicing Foley attorney who chose to leave legal practice to become a talent management professional. So before we dive into her talking about her role as Foley's Director of Professional Development, we first cover her path to law and a bit about her practice. She discusses growing up in Los Gatos, California, attending the University of California at Los Angeles for undergrad and Northwestern for law school. She shares how she grew up in a household with two prosecutors and really thought becoming a prosecutor was what she wanted to do. So she went to college, she went to law school with that in mind, but she took a slightly different path. First, she clerked for two years, then she joined a large law firm as a litigation associate, and subsequently lateral to Foley as a general commercial litigation associate and white collar associate. But after a few years with Foley, the opportunity to become the firm's director of recruiting arose, and she decided to leave full-time legal practice. Another thing that we cover is Foley's overall investment in a talent management at the firm. And so you'll learn that within the last few years, Foley has devoted a lot of resources to further supporting and elevating overall talent management at Foley. And as a part of that, Rebecca then had the opportunity after five years as the director of recruiting to step into the role of director of professional development. We cover what that is, and I think most importantly for listeners, no matter where you are in your career, we cover why it's important. I think often when we're talking about large law firms, particularly for law students or junior lawyers, you forget that there is a whole apparatus or structure supporting the development of attorneys and that it can actually play a really key role in your career. My hope is that hearing Rebecca and I unpack some of this and also talk about how professional development and other talent management work is connected to diversity and inclusion we can give some of you additional questions to ask as you figure out resources within your firm, or if you're somebody who's outside of Foley, as you figure out how to navigate large law firms and frankly, figure out if they will be able to develop you. I will also add that we did not take a deep dive or really talk much about Rebecca's former practice as a commercial litigation associate or in white collar. But if that's something you'd like to hear about, I recommend that you check out the episode of the podcast with Greg Heinen. He's episode 27 and a commercial litigation associate at Foley, as well as an episode featuring Olivia Singleman, episode number 34, who's a senior counsel in Foley's white collar practice group. With that, I'll just say, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rebecca. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to have you start like all my guests, which is ask you to give your professional introduction. Hi, Alexis. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Rebecca Bradley. I am the Director of Professional Development at Foley & Lardner, and in my role, I direct all functions related to attorney development. That's at a very high level, and I'm sure we'll get to more details later. 
We definitely will. So before we jumped on, just so the listener knows, I was telling Rebecca how excited I am to nerd out a bit about legal talent and development because I just don't think within the structure of large law firms this is talked about enough. So I'm very excited once we get there, but we do have to get there. So let's start somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up in Northern California in the Bay Area, South Bay, primarily in the Santa Cruz Mountains, just south of Las Gatas and near Santa Cruz. It's so funny. You've told me this before, but I completely forgot. Thus, I found that very surprising (laughs) for some reason. And also, it's funny. So for people who listen to this show, this is oftentimes the first opportunity, even though, you know, Rebecca and I work together frequently, where you get to unpack someone's life. So I'm like, all right, well, so, so go on. Tell me a little bit about, I don't know, a snapshot of what you were like in, say, elementary school or middle school. What, what, what were you into? So I would say I was always really academically inclined. I think I was valedictorian of my middle school. I used to, I talk to my daughter now about competing with my elementary school teachers on multiplication flashcards because those things just came naturally. And I, to use your phrase, like nerded out on school. So I was definitely that kid. And then around junior high, I got involved in sports and I started playing soccer. And so soccer became a really serious part of my life outside of school in junior high and then throughout high school. I just have to add that the thought of multiplication flashcards gives me anxiety now. <laughs> so so I, I was a kid where they would, I don't know if they do this anymore in school. I think they do, where you would have the timed tests. That really stressed me out. And you're bringing back flashbacks that I do not want to remember, but you were probably doing really well at those. (laughs) (laughs) I really loved school. I didn't necessarily have to work very hard at it, but because I always did really well, it sort of propelled me to focus on it more and to really double down and invest there. I would say that about 70% of the lawyers on this podcast say that. So, you know, some sort of social science research, a lot of people who nerd out in school, end up going to law school. And I wanted to ask you, did you have any siblings growing up? Yes. So I have a younger brother. You know, he's 20 months younger than me. And as my parents would say, if Rebecca got straight A's in school, Nelson got straight A pluses. So I had built-in competition, you know, right there at home. Wow. A little friendly, baby friendly, but I'll call it friendly sibling rivalry. And so you mentioned, okay, so it was probably doing great at school, I'm assuming, as you're playing soccer. Is that the dynamic you had going through high school as well? Yes. At the end of my freshman year in high school, I made the varsity soccer team, like for the final tournament at the end of the season, and really solidified my commitment to the coach and the team and played varsity soccer, which is basically a year-round commitment. So you play on the school team, and then you play on the club team and the traveling team. So it was a lot. Wow, that is a lot. So as you start thinking about college, what was the plan and was soccer involved in that at all? It was something that I did think about. And at the time, my coach was talking to at least one of the schools that I had on my radar. But I quickly sort of decided that I didn't want it to be my life, which it definitely would have been in college. And I wasn't at the level that I would have been starting at the team or even close to that. And just sort of like what fueled me and actually having a leading role, you know, wasn't going to be on the horizon for a couple of years. So I abandoned that pretty quickly when it came time to apply applying to colleges and was really more focused on the academic piece. And then how did you decide? How did you decide where are you going to go? And then where did you go? 
So I applied all over and I was pretty keen on staying in California. My number one choice school, actually Stanford, I didn't get into. And so after that, I was really focused on the UC system, which I've heard other podcast guests speak about their experience with the University of California. So my top two choices were UCLA and UC Berkeley, but I was really looking for an opportunity to leave Northern California and to spend some time in Southern California. I was sort of enamored with fashion and the beach and warm weather and all of those things. So I went to UCLA. And what was the plan to go to college, focus on what was it? I'm guessing it wasn't on fashion, but maybe it was. So what was your thoughts as to your major? Yeah. So I didn't focus on fashion specifically in undergrad, but to take a step back, I grew up with my mom and my stepfather, who were both prosecutors, so state prosecutors, so both lawyers and district attorneys for Santa Clara County in Northern California. My stepfather is now retired, but my mom still practices there and has since since I was very young. She actually interviewed for the job when she was nine months pregnant with me. So kind of the law and courtroom drama and arguments and advocacy and making your case was something that I always grew up with. And it was sort of a given. <laughs> As much as I didn't want to admit it to, especially my mother, who I didn't want to end up being anything else like, that I would go to law school. So my degree and sort of focus in undergrad seemed a bit irrelevant. And I just wanted to focus on what I enjoyed and what I thought I was good at. And I found that my where I really gravitated and where I performed the best was in my writing classes. And so I became an English major. I have to go back to being in a household with two prosecutors. (laughs) And so, and I don't even know what I should ask, whether it's related to just like household dynamics or the sort of stuff, the type of prosecutors, like the type of cases that they were working on. I'm guessing it was a wide variety. Did they, can you speak at all, I guess, to the the type of work they did? Because I'm just wondering kind of what you were exposed to or talking about at the dinner table. Yeah. So they both rotated through different assignments at the DA's office. But what I remember most clearly is that my stepfather was focused on insurance fraud. And my mom popped up, hopped around a bit more than he did. She did a lot of cases with elder fraud and abuse. And I distinctly remember so how my childhood may have been different. So like on a sick day, I had to go to court with my mom and sit there and watch her cross-examine witnesses about did they forge these checks on behalf of the elderly person that they were supposed to be caring for. So things like that. So I grew up spending time in the courtroom, hearing my parents talk a lot about cases that they were working on, ways in which criminals were perpetrating terrible acts against humanity, and generally having like a paranoid mother as a result of that. Which makes a ton of sense. I'm just imagining you, like you said, sick day. I don't know if it's middle school, you kind of, you know, pack up your trapper keeper and sit sit in the court. That's really, really interesting because as I, you know, talk to the guests, it's interesting to see where they had that first touch point with the law. And so for you, it was always there. I mean, since utero, essentially, yeah. when your mom was... <laughs> When your mom was was interviewed. Okay, that's that's an interesting background. Okay, so you focus on English. How did you find your experience in in college? What was that like? 
It was great. I mean, I would say my experience in college was dominated more by the social than the academic, as I think is probably pretty common, especially for somebody who is so academically focused until they get to college. But I, I did well. I joined a sorority and, you know, had various leadership roles in my sorority, which was important to me. I lived in the house with all of my girlfriends who I'm still in touch with today. And it was a really positive experience. But you knew law school was next. So how does that, what's that process like? What did, what did you do to figure that out? So I knew law school was next. So at whatever the natural time was to start studying and applying, I did that right away. And I, you know, focused on where I could likely get in and had sort of stretch schools based on my LSAT score and my GPA. And then schools that I was like pretty sure that I would get into like sort of middle zone and then like a comfort, like absolutely I'll get in here so I won't be sort of like in a lurch because I knew that I wanted to go. And unlike undergrad, I wasn't so set about what was my number one choice. And I was a bit more open, both geographically and sort of type of school. And what I ultimately decided on, so I went to Northwestern here in Chicago for law school. And in arriving at that decision, I was sort of juxtaposing the different experience that I might have at a much smaller private university than a really huge public institution that was my undergrad. And I really just wanted that more one-on-one career guidance and counseling and connections with the faculty that I didn't get at UCLA, where I'd be sitting in this literally massive lecture hall with a whole bunch of people and with Yeah, like hundreds probably for certain Or sometimes thousands. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You're like anonymous to the professor. And then geographically and sort of um, ranking wise, I didn't 100% know what I wanted to do when I graduated law school. And I wanted to have the most amount of flexibility to do whatever came to me. And so I really was focused on, for better or worse, the ranking and prestige of the law school, but also looking at data around where recent grads went to work when they graduated. And I saw that Northwestern was able to place people nationally, like both in the Midwest and also on both coasts. And those were probably the most likely places that I would have ended up after law school graduation. So it was a little bit of a thoughtful process, technical process. And then I visited the campus and just fell in love with Chicago and specifically where the campus is located. I'm assuming you did not visit in winter, though. My guess is you didn't visit. (laughs) It was a spring visit and it was beautiful. (laughs) It is beautiful. But when you're next to the, as you know, when you're next to the lake in winter, it's and walking up, I forgot what the street is, but that wind hits you. It's a whole different experience. Yes. I had to buy like my first true coat when I moved here. And the whole thing was very foreign to me for quite a long time. (laughs) Well, and how was that for you? Because had you really meaningfully been or spent much time outside of California up until that point? Well, just like feelings around being in the Midwest for for a number of years? What was that like? Not really. When I was a baby, I was here visiting my grandfather with my dad in the Detroit area, but nothing that I could recall. My mom's family is from New York, so pretty much all of our family trips were to the East Coast to visit her family. So I spent a lot of time in New York, but everything in the middle was basically flyover, and I couldn't tell you, you know, what states were even next to Illinois. Yes, as someone who grew up in Wisconsin and then went to undergrad in D.C., telling people you're from Wisconsin when they are from either coast and they look at you and they're like, hmm, is that the Great pl- is Right, is that the Great Plains? And I was like, no, it's the Midwest. And they're like, we don't care. But okay, girl from Wisconsin. 
<laughs> so what was the law school experience like? And you know, you've mentioned how obviously like academics weren't, you know, gifted academically. Was it an adjustment starting law school? Not as much as maybe for some of my classmates. So I think it, what is true today and maybe even more exacerbated today is Northwestern's focus on a student body that's a bit more experienced and a lot of people have had, you know, some sort of career before coming to law school. And that was also true at the time that I was there. I remember in my orientation session at the law school, they told us like the percentage of students that had come straight through and it was like very small, like 10% or less. And I was in that category. But I do think it helped me in terms of preparedness for the rigor and intensity that was law school because I was used to doing homework and having sort of that sort of schedule where you go to a class and then have a bunch of stuff to do on your own in the evenings or on the weekend and then perform in class, if you will. And also, you know, I think I had a leg up in law school because of my English background and all of the experience that I had with writing. It certainly is a different type of writing, but my legal writing class, my first year of law school just clicked. Wow. That's a testament, by the way. You were meant to do professional development because of that, but go on. Um, But I didn't really have to work all that hard in law school because a lot of the way in which you are evaluated in law school is based on your writing ability. At least the exams that I took were there were all sort of essay based. And so if you could write really well and persuasively, even if you really totally didn't know all of the case law exactly, you did really well. And so I think because of that, I maybe didn't seem like I like worked as hard as my peers, but but I did fine. That's an excellent point. I remember my 1L year torts class in particular. Maybe this was something that in, in hindsight, where I realized if you could just write a lot, like just being able to write a lot really fast, you know, hopefully that somewhat made sense. That probably it could increase your grade significantly just by like how many words did you write down? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. And if you kind of spotted the wrong issue, that almost got swept aside as long as you spotted all the right issues as well. Yes. Yeah. And can I just add a little bit of a disclaimer to the law students listening? Please do what you're supposed to do for your school, not just based on what you know we're saying, having graduated from law school well over a decade ago. But I think that's right, particularly once again for a torchlight class. It was my professor wanted you to identify pretty much every issue that could possibly happen. So it'd be like maybe aliens would come down and you'd say the stadium should have known that aliens and it's strict liability, like to just every permutation of what could, and you can definitely do that when you can write fast. That's really, that's interesting. And also in contrast to some of the people I've had on, particularly those who are like STEM undergrad, because we, you know, at Foley have a large IP practice. So I've had a number of IP folks on the podcast and they'll talk about also how it was a huge adjustment because they hadn't really been using that side of their brain in that way. And then I think overall, a lot of people just find law school to be a challenge, but having an English major is also challenging. So as you said, you'd had a bit of a runway for that. So what was the process then for you to figure out what was next after law school and what what did you do? Yeah, so like the world of big law was an unknown thing to me until I stepped foot on Northwestern's campus. Like, even though I grew up in a family with lawyers, it was not a big law family. And I didn't really know anything about and they're, that They were world. government, right? They're government they were lawyers. government lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. And criminal lawyers. And there was a criminal law class. I think it was a required class in the first year of law school. But 
and I think I took criminal procedure as an elective course, but predominantly the curriculum at law school is not related to criminal law. It's corporate law. And so the idea that, and I remember when I, at one point when I visited and maybe it was when I was starting my first year and all of the students in the class ahead of me were there for on-campus interviews and I saw them going from room to room in these suits, these really nice suits. And I was like, what are they doing? And I, I learned about this whole on-campus interview where what is that? These big firms like actively come to the law school to recruit from Northwestern and they will pay you. And I was like, what? They will pay me what? And I think at the time it was $125,000 was the entry level salary at the big law firms. And by the time I graduated law school, it had increased in that very short three-year time frame to 160. So as someone who had law school debt and was sort of enamored with the idea of all the resources that these big law firms could provide in terms of my training and development and a platform to do who knows what else in the future, I was sold. You're like, I'm going to figure out this big law thing. I'm going to do on-campus interviewing. But I really love how you explain that and that perspective because for people like us now who have been working in this industry for quite some time, I think it's really easy to forget that. That, you know, I was definitely the same way. I mean, I obviously knew that large law firms were a potential route post-law school, but in terms of knowing law firm names or what to consider or how on-campus interviewing works, and I had that exact same experience where you're like, why are people dressed up today? Or um, for me specifically at the University of Michigan, we had our little mailboxes, which were file folders called Pendaflex, and a law firm left massive chocolate bars in each person's Pendaflex, and it just had their name. And I was like, I had no idea what it was. I was like, someone's giving me chocolate. I don't know what this is. <laughs> like, I don't know what this firm is. Because <laughs> I was I was so naive about but just, you know, the industry or anything like that. But no, you just did a great job, I think, reminding for the lawyers listening, you know, what it was like to be a law student. Hopefully for the law students who are in that position now know that you're not, not alone. Most people, I think, don't sort of know what's going on when it comes to that. But so Rebecca, you do on-campus interviewing. Is that is that what happened next? Yeah. So I interviewed. So my first year, you know, as a 1L, I didn't go for a, a law firm job. I actually went back to the government roots and I externed at the U.S. Attorney's Office back where I was from in Northern California. And I loved it. And if anything, it solidified for me what I thought would be my career path as a prosecutor. But when I came back to campus and, you know, wanted the the summer associate salary as a 2L and the potential to work in big law at graduation. I did the whole OCI thing. I think my version of your chocolate bar was the travel. So it was the first time I had ever done like business or like comped travel because when I interviewed for 2L summer associate jobs, I interviewed in both Chicago and back home in California. So I got to take a, a few cool trips and I got to take an airplane and stay in a hotel by myself and the firm just paid for it, like no questions asked. And that was also just a totally foreign thing to me. And I ended up deciding that I wanted to place some roots in Chicago. And so I accepted an offer at a big firm here. Once again, you're taking me back with the law firm's pain. It's, and the thing is, it's different now because of the pandemic we world we live in, and we're doing so much interviewing remotely. And frankly, I think for OCI, not you know, hopefully no one's too disappointed by this, but I think a lot of that may be here to stay because it makes sense. But I remember there were certain firms even where you'd have to front the money and they would reimburse you. 
And I like barely had a credit card at that point in my life. So there was just things that were hard to navigate that I'd, I'd also forgotten about. But okay, so you do OCI, you decide on the firm you're starting with. Did you go there straight after law school or did you clerk in between? The latter. So in my third year, so I ended up joining the law review whenever year you do that. And my grades were sort of borderline for law review, but part of the component of evaluating candidates for law review was the written component. There was like a writing competition, this totally energy zapping thing that they would make you do right after final exams. But because Sorry, it was- Worst timing ever. And a lot of schools still do that. We can just say, it's terrible. You're exhausted, but go on. Yeah. It's really just a weeding process in itself because I definitely had classmates who took themselves out of the running because it was just too intense to take that on. But again, it was another thing in which you were judged by your writing ability and ability to synthesize information from a closed universe and put forth, you know, a advocacy piece. And so at some point later, a member of the law review told me that I had the best writing competition paper. So they had no option but to invite me to the law review, even though, like I said, my grades were like a little borderline, I think, for what they were expecting. And sort of networking with that group and working with the law review staff got me more interested in pursuing a clerkship. And that's really how that opportunity got on my radar. And Northwestern had wonderful resources in terms of applying. It might seem like really old school, but there was a list of judges. And I think that piece might have been electronic, but you had a limit on how many judges you could apply for. I mean, it was a, a large number, like 50 or something. And you filled out your applications. And then I remember like going to physically like drop them in boxes. And then the law school organized sort of the collating of them all together and getting them to chambers on your behalf. Um, so I applied all over the country. I was pretty pretty agnostic. I said I could live anywhere for a year or two. I remember applying to some federal judge in Idaho. I applied, you know, on the East Coast in California, here in Chicago. And my first interview and I and my first job offer for a clerkship role was here in Chicago with Judge Zagel. And so I jumped at the opportunity. It's one of those calls that you remember like exactly where you were standing when it came and sort of how you reacted. And I can still like feel that feeling today and how excited I was for it. So I did that for two years after I graduated. That's wonderful. And, you know, I kind of skipped ahead, but presumably the firm you were promised to, I'm assuming you were at your 2L summer. And then were you able sort of to defer joining them until after you, you clerked? Yeah, so they were more than willing to defer the offer until after the clerkship, but I actually decided on a different firm while I was clerking through the clerk family, if you will, like prior law clerks to the same judge. I was introduced to a different law firm in town, and they really heavily recruited me to join them. And so I decided to go in that direction. And part of it was just because they offered me twice as big of a clerkship bonus than my first firm. And for someone who had a large amount of student debt and was living off of a law clerk salary for a couple years after law school, it made a big difference. That was impactful. And by the way, did you go inside signing up for two years or did you end up extending it to two years? I knew it was going to be two years and it was pretty common way for judges, at least in the Northern District of Illinois, to structure the clerkship where he hires one clerk every other year for two years. So you always have a senior law clerk and a junior law clerk. So someone who trains you and then the next year you kind of get the opportunity that continuity. to train. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what kind of stuff did you do as a clerk? 
everything, everything and anything. And the judge knew that I was um, very interested in criminal work. So the default rule was that he would handle the criminal matters himself. And to be honest, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of motion practice and the requirement for written opinions as it came to the criminal work. A lot of it was like quicker motions that were decided from the bench. But whenever there was a writing opportunity that came with a criminal matter, regardless, I was the even law clerk. So I got to work on all the cases that ended in an even number. So for regardless of whether it was an even or an odd, he would really filter all the criminal stuff to me. So I got to continue to get exposure to that. But the vast majority of it was, you know, really understanding what Marty Reddish was talking about in civil procedure. I was like, oh, Rule 56, like, oh, that's what they're talking about. I understand now how it works in real life. So it was a bunch of my, my entire day was filled with reading submissions from parties, doing legal research. I sat in court almost every single day you know, watching the docket and to the extent we were in trial and then just writing uh, opinions on behalf of the judge, like draft opinions, obviously, that he would review and, and edit. That experience and context is so important. And, you know, we've had, I've had people on who clerked before. And so for listeners or whomever is considering being a litigator, clerking is really helpful. I mean, I'm a former litigator who did not clerk. And part of it may just be me being a little dense, but I will admit there were things that I was, you know, well into my fourth, fifth, maybe sixth year of practice <laughs> that I I didn't necessarily appreciate. And particularly towards the end of my career, I remember working with a partner and I would, I would ask her all my civil procedure questions. And eventually I was like, oh, it's so funny. Whenever I ask her these things, she just opens the book and reads the rule. Huh? Why does she do that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So it took some of us longer to understand what was going on. But also with you, Rebecca, this is very exciting because obviously I know how this story ends professionally, but there's part of me that's like, how does all this happen, right? Because right now, you know, we have someone who's very interested in criminal procedure, prosecution, legal writing, and of course we know you don't practice anymore, but we will get there. So what what's next after the two years of clerking? Yeah. Then what happens? So I go to this firm in Chicago and I practice as a litigation associate and I get great experience. And really the two things were that were missing were one, more of a focus on the criminal aspect of the practice. And in that setting, it would either be pro bono work on behalf of criminal clients as a defense or like white collar type investigation work. And there was just so much competition for it and so many associates that wanted it. You know, it was hard to really make that a core part of your practice. And then the other thing that was missing for me was really more of an opportunity to practice and actually use oral advocacy as part of my daily litigation practice. I was primarily relied on for my writing ability, and I was the third or fourth associate in line at the very bottom of the case, and my drafts would be passed up and up, and then someone else would do the argument. I would say, with the exception of a pro bono matter where I did get to argue a Section 1983 excessive force case before the Seventh Circuit, I really had almost no opportunity for oral advocacy. And I had actually just been passed over for an opportunity like that to argue one of my briefs when a, a legal recruiter called, which they do from time to time. A well-timed recruiter call. I can relate to that as a former recruiter. Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. So a recruiter called. She told me about the opportunity at Foley. 
And it sounded like all the things that I was looking for. There was a white collar partner that was looking for a dedicated associate. And the associates generally had the experience where they were getting deposition practice and in court experience like much earlier in their careers. And I was like, sure, I'll go talk to them. Well, and before we go into full-on, fully propaganda mode, just kidding, but had you, were you tempted at all or had you been considering going government at any point? Yeah. Absolutely. A different inflection, you know, each year or when I saw that the U.S. Attorney's Office was hiring, I definitely thought about it. But it just was never the right time for me. I want. I was getting great experience at my first law firm. I mean, I was working on very sophisticated litigation matters. I was spending a lot of time writing and doing research and sort of watching the practice evolve and, and taking advantage of the robust training resources. So I wasn't necessarily lacking. And also the compensation differential was a big motivating factor. Mm-hmm. Well, I also like what you said about it just wasn't the right time because I think this is true for everyone, whether it be financial related or you know personal family stuff. There's a lot more that guides our professional decisions than just sort of pure, you know, what do I think sounds neat, right? And I don't know that we if we talk about that enough. So I think that's an important thing you raise. But so you got the call. The recruiter called you that the, the correct time, which you know, like I said, I was a recruiter for a couple of years, and there are times where you, like you just happen to connect with that associate in the right window where they're open to certain opportunities. And so you make the move to Foley. And then, so what was that like and what happened? It was exactly what I had hoped it would be. The firm really fulfilled all the promises that they made to me at the recruiting stage. So I truly worked as the go-to associate for one of our lead and now the head of the practice group of our white collar practice. And I loved it. I loved having more opportunity to speak with clients, to interface with the government. And I also was able to keep a broad mix of like, you know, general commercial litigation matters, but in a way that was much more, I would say, accessible to the meat of the work. And most of that was driven just in the way that fully staffed its matters. So it was very common. And by the time I I lateraled over to Foley, I was a mid-level associate. So it was most often it was me working with the partner. And then sometimes I there was also a junior associate on the matter. So it was really that level of responsibility and kind of engagement with the client and with the partner that I was looking for. And there were right away opportunities to take depositions, to go to court, to really manage small cases all by myself with the supervision of the partner. And I really felt like, okay, finally, I'm I'm actually practicing law. I have a couple things. Well, a couple questions, a couple comments. So once you got to Foley, I think you mentioned you were a mix of white collar, but also still general commercial litigation. And I, you know, your experience, I have your LinkedIn up because I like to follow the different inflection oh, points gosh, on the it's probably on, not I, updated. I think it's it's doing you're doing a good job. Everything okay. tracks so far. But it looks like you joined Foley in 2012. So I know you're going in on, you know, a decade with the firm in some capacity, but I think this was still very much true in 2012, but just the nature of how fully structured and our leverage, we do, you know, I think across the firm, things get staffed you know, relatively leanly, right? In a way that people are getting early experience. And in referring to the leverage, just the fact that, you know, we have roughly a one-to-one partner to associate ratio. And I think that even shows up in the experience you shared from when you first joined the firm, which I like to tease out for people who are curious. 
about the firm. And the other thing I'll add is I have had some of our other white collar and commercial litigation attorneys on the podcast. So we will not dive deep into the ins and outs of that part of your life. But in in the intro, what I will do is share some of those episode numbers in case people are interested in finding out more about those practice areas. But for you, Rebecca, we know you make a career pivot at some point. So you've gotten what you wanted, but it sounds like maybe there were some other interests as well. So what happens next? Yeah. So a couple of years into my practice at Foley, I was invited to join the firm's recruiting committee. I think I might've actually mentioned it in one of my self-evaluation, what we call our annual report, that it was an investment time activity that I was interested in. I had been on the admissions committee at Northwestern Law School, and I regularly did tours of the campus and recruited students to the law school. And I had a similar capacity as a recruitment chair in my sorority. So I think it was just sort of a natural fit. And I also felt really strongly about my own experience coming to Foley, especially having compared it to one other law firm in town, that what we had to offer here was truly something unique and valuable and something that I wanted to talk about and share that experience and sort of encourage others to follow the same path here to Foley. So I had mentioned that I wanted to do it, and I actually didn't think anyone would read that annual report. And I think I may have been out on maternity leave with my daughter when I got a call from the head of the hiring committee here in Chicago inviting me to join. And I was like, whoa, cool. Yes, I'll do that. And so that was just my first introduction. And then I got to do more things. I had interviewed on campus at my prior firm too. So I kind of knew what it was to be a part of the recruiting team. And I interviewed on campus at Northwestern and was part of the team here in the Chicago office recruiting our entry-level students to the office. And so that was like my first taste of what is talent at a big law firm? What does a legal recruiting team do? And the actual pivot came when the firm's director of legal recruiting took an early retirement. So she was a, a really well-respected talent professional, also former lawyer turned talent professional, had practiced at Foley. So her path was something that I could sort of mirror. I didn't know her very well, but I knew she was well-respected. I saw communications that came from her and thought that they were strong and interesting. And so when I, as a member of the committee, got an email from her that she was leaving the firm to basically retire, I, I called her and I said, I would love to learn a little bit more about what you do because I think I might be interested in this role. Wow. And the rest is history, except we will talk a little bit about it, which is that you did get that role. So you became Foley's director of recruiting, which is actually the capacity in which we first met. I've said multiple times, it usually doesn't come up this much in a podcast, but I've said multiple times that I was a recruiter. And I think the first time Rebecca, you and I met was when I was a recruiter, because I, you know, also in Chicago and pretty much exclusively focused on that market. So maybe like five plus years ago, five, six years ago, we went to lunch at some point, not not knowing one day we'd be colleagues. <laughs> yes, which as an aside is another testament to how small the world is and the legal world and you never know what's going to happen. But yeah, I, I would guess that was maybe six years ago. Yeah, maybe like 2015, 16, something like that. Yes, yes, right in there. Because 2017 would have been when I made the switch to dedicated diversity and inclusion professional. And I'd love if you could say just like a handful of words, because we I know we want to talk about legal talent in general. And of course, your current role is 
director of professional development at the firm, but you were in the role as director of recruiting, I think for over five, five years. And so I think people know what that is, but if you wouldn't mind just saying a couple, a couple of words about, you know, what, what all is encompassed when you're, you know, leading recruiting at a large law firm. Yeah, sure. So basically my responsibility was to develop strategies and then execute on them to recruit all of the attorneys to the firm, ranging from entry level to eventually senior partners. So when I first took on the role, it really only encompassed entry level associates and lateral associates. And after a few years of doing that, which I loved, I really saw a need to broaden the scope of the recruiting department to also provide strategic direction to lateral partner recruitment. So the firm appointed a chief strategic talent acquisition partner who still serves in her role today. And together, we developed you know, a comprehensive program for sourcing and identifying and ultimately recruiting lateral partner level candidates and groups into the firm. Well, at this point, I've worked at you know a number of large law firms, and I do have to say coming into Foley and learning what little bit I learned at the time about Foley's integration of lateral partners was really impressive. It's just the firm has a really comprehensive way of onboarding and assisting and then sort of tracking lateral partners, which I just think is really neat. And I'm sure is, you know, a testament to to the work that that you did prior to switching roles and becoming director of professional development, which now I think you've had this hat on. It's definitely been, a, is it a year and a half? Are we closing yeah. in on two years, maybe? Closing in on two years this spring. So coming up on it. Yeah. So actually, something I want to do is give listeners a little bit of context for, I'll back up completely. So when I talk to the lawyers um, and tell them what I do as a diversity professional at Foley, I'll often say, when I was practicing, I rarely would sit back and think, huh, how does my firm structure the back-end talent management functions, right? Usually when you are joining a law firm, you're not going to ask for the org chart for the rest of the firm. But, you know, I think it's actually really important as to what those functions are and how they're structured and how you're supported. And something that Foley did, I'd say starting about three years ago, is Foley brought in a chief legal talent officer, Jen Patton. And as a part of that, really provided additional resources. And I would say just elevated the overall talent management experience by taking functions that have been at the firm for a long time, but putting them all under the heading of legal talent development. So that includes diversity, you know, myself includes you as professional development, includes attorney coaching, includes alumni, and includes recruiting. But we are in the same department, and we're focused on all those life cycle events, like sort of what you just mentioned, but from recruiting you into the firm, frankly, up through retirement, all the things that help our legal talent. And so I just wanted to give that context to everyone because it's really important. And I'll try not to get too on my soapbox about how important that collaboration is to if you want to actually achieve diversity and inclusion and move the needle on that. But so that's sort of the context with some of the the movement. I think, you know, maybe externally, some folks may have noticed we've actually hired quite a bit within this side of the house. And it's because Foley's made this concerted effort to add even more support to those folks. But as a part of that big change, you had the opportunity to take on another, or switch hats, not take on another hat, because <laughs> you gave the recruiting hat to someone else. Right, <laughs> that's right. You had the opportunity to become Foley's director of professional development. I know you said what you what you do in that role earlier, but that was like 40 minutes ago. So could you say again? what you do now as PD director? Sure. And one thing first that maybe I would have never asked as a law student was around the firm's strategic plan. 
And then when you're interviewing with that firm, and hopefully you can find something about the strategic plan on their website or in their recruiting materials, but ask the attorneys that you're meeting with what that means for the firm. And you'll understand if the firm is really committed and how they're acting on those plans and living those values with what the attorneys actually know or the action steps and what they see happening around them. And the fact that talent is one of the core pillars of our strategic plan is really evident by so many things that are going on at Foley. You know, Alexis, you just mentioned the hiring into the talent area, the programs that we have the budget to bring to bear for our associates to engage with. So I would focus on that too. But in terms of like, what do we do in the professional development department? I would say it's what most people think of as training. And that is definitely one of our core functions. And I'm happy to talk and would love to talk a little bit more about everything we do on the training front. But it also includes all the other types of support that you might think that you need over the course of your career. You might not understand at the front end of your career that you need them, but they're here for you when you do need them. So at the very front end, we provide all attorneys with like a comprehensive orientation program, and we focus on their integration to the firm when they first get here. We also lead the firm's mentoring program. We organize and execute everything related to the feedback and evaluation process. We also now oversee our work allocation. It's really like an associate utilization system to sort of right-size work towards interest areas across associates and across practice groups. And then we also provide career transition support, which I'm sure we'll talk a bit about. You've said a few things that uh, just show how nerdy I am about talent management that are my favorite words, in particular, the the feedback and review system, as well as things related to work allocation, because those have huge impacts. I mean, they all impact the experiences, but those in particular, I think, are heavily connected to diversity inclusion. And this is also where when we talk about this stuff, I, I fear that those who aren't talent management professionals, their eyes glaze over and are like... What are they talking about? But, you know, just to spell out what you just said, Rebecca, for law students listening, you want to know if that law firm cares and is focused on people, period. And often, if you're able to see or talk about a strategic plan, you want to make sure it says people or talent in the plan or that that's in the core values of the firm. If it's not, and I think most firms do, but still, if it's not, that may give you some indications as to the culture. (laughs) of the organization. So I just had to spell that out because I love that you you mentioned that for people. But you know, you listed a lot of things. What are the things you wish that either law students or attorneys knew about some of their resources and how somebody on PD can help them as they're navigating their legal career? I guess just to understand that it's comprehensive training. Sometimes I think when attorneys think of training programs, they think that it just hits on how do I take a deposition or how do I draft and negotiate a disclosure schedule, like things that are more core to the substance of the practice area. But we're also a resource for the sort of the career development type of skills. And we try to introduce those at like the right place and time, but we're a big organization. And so your professional development team probably has resources to meet you with, you know, when you need them. So if you're not hearing about resources on how to delegate work, but you find yourself in a position where your supervising attorneys are pushing you to start delegating work and you're not really sure, you haven't stretched that muscle and you're not really sure how to do it, chances are your PD team has some resources that they can provide you. Absolutely. And on behalf of 
our legal talent development and PD teams, and maybe on behalf of those at any large law firm, there's a decent chance that maybe there was an email about that resource or maybe multiple emails. <laughs> but given that, you know, a lot of our lawyers are very focused on their billable ma- matters, I think it's easy to miss when that sort of stuff is shared. Something also that I can't help but sort of you know use you, Rebecca, to talk a little bit about is I'm often asked, Alexis, your director of diversity inclusion at a big firm, how do I, as a law student or perhaps as a lateral attorney, know if that, that organization cares about diversity? And I'll often say all of our websites look the same. It's going to be very hard for you to tell just from that, which is, you know, the thing particularly law students will obsess over. But your North Star is that firm's ability to develop you as an attorney, right? Their ability to train you. All the things you just mentioned, Rebecca, which happen both informally and formally. So I actually think what's most powerful is learning about the professional development opportunities, learning about the structures. And it can seem like a tall order to try and unpack those systems, but that's actually what affects your day-to-day. There's a lot of other things. I won't I won't go too far into that, but I think that's often a missed point is that students will go right to the DNI page and not read the information about all the other ways the firm is going to develop them. Because that commitment to you as an individual is what is key. And I think something you've also been speaking to is the fact that, you know, we're really large law firms. Fully, I think our attorney headcount is now over 1,100. And we're in a career that used to be apprentice style, right? It used to be, here's your, you just shadowed this lawyer for five to seven years and you'll learn how to be a lawyer. But the growth of professional development departments and just talent management in general is a response to just how many lawyers we're training and how important it is. And the other thing, you know, that's really important, nothing will replace the value of on-the-job training. That is truly the best. So the feedback that you're getting and the actual experiences that you're getting in either your billable or your pro bono matter are always going to be sort of the best source. But sometimes you just need the nuts and bolts, like what are the rules and what are some best practices when I get there? The -the on-the-job training is also, although we have mechanisms in place, it's also the hardest thing to control as a talent professional. It's much easier for us to make sure that we're delivering equitable training across practice groups and across offices and sort of just in time and just in format that the attorney needs at different stages in their career. So that's what we definitely have to do. That's like a given that has to be done. And then some of the more creative work happens on the side of the the work allocation and the utilization systems that we have in place to try to right size and match up the opportunities where all of that other really important training takes place. Yes, I'd say that is very well said. And a couple other things I want to acknowledge is the importance of you know your role as well as other talent management professionals just navigating this pandemic environment and all of the I don't even know what the right term is. I'm going to say like mobilization, but going, you know, virtual for so many things, but really mobilizing to support the lawyers and kind of turn on a dime. Um, I know at this point we feel like we've been operating in a pandemic forever, but all of this had to get changed so quickly. So I think the support of you and your department has been invaluable. And the other thing for lawyers, because, you know, we are in sort of difficult times, I think professional development and talent or legal talent development are also great resources when you feel like you just need some help right? Whether it be exploring who can kind of guide your pointer in the right direction and exploring perhaps reduced or flexible schedule options, perhaps just other resources that could be useful. And I think sometimes we'll, we'll forget about that as another way that we're able to assist attorneys. Absolutely. And we can be there when things are slow, when someone's having a slower you know, period in their practice because it 
typically ebbs and flows regardless of what practice area you find yourself in. We have nearly unlimited training resources. We try to do a good job of curating them and presenting them to our attorneys in a way so that they understand what sort of like what I must engage with versus what I could and should engage with if I if I have the time. But where I also think we provide great value is when the firm is on sort of that upswing when we're very, very, very busy and our partners really don't have time to, to think thoughtfully on things like staffing because they're just so busy that they need an associate to do the work now. And so where we can come into play is building up thoughtful systems that allow them to more thoughtfully but easily with not any more and hopefully less effort than they would have to do without the system, you know, distribute work as an example more equitably and more fairly and more aligned with the associates' interests, which they're telling us. Like we ask the associates, what are you interested in working on that you're not already doing? Or what are you doing that you really are interested in and you want to double down and really develop that as your specialty practice? We maintain that information and have very easy ways that we can share it with partners who are doling out the work so that we can sort of right-size the opportunity to the the associate. Which is so important and which is why I'm so happy you're on my team because all the words you were saying, if anyone was able to see the video of us talking, which they can't, you just see me smiling because those have huge diversity and inclusion implications. And, you know, Rebecca knows this well, but I'm also as a DNI professional, very much a, a systems person. Education and training are key, but I think overall, in terms of large law firms, we've maybe focused a little too much on that and not so much in the system. So it's a privilege for me, Rebecca, to work with you and our broader team to see those systems come to fruition because I'll often say a lot of things that impact diversity and inclusion, they're not labeled diversity and inclusion, right? But you were speaking to that just then. The final comment I want to make also because our team, you know, given that Foley is a you know very old law firm, our team and our department are relatively new. And so I think also for the Foley attorneys who are listening to this to please consider us a resource. I think sometimes um, you know, of course, your practice group, your department chairs, others in your office or in your group are resources, but so is your legal talent development team. So one thing that I'm on a mission to is just to educate everybody about, you know, you as a resource, Rebecca, Jen as a resource, Jen Patton, Amy Moynihan, and myself, because I think sometimes the lawyers can forget about just how tied in we are to essentially their day-to-day experience. And sometimes when you don't quite know who to ask or maybe you're a little intimidated, you're a little more junior, a little intimidated to ask that senior partner, you know, you can feel free certainly to ask Rebecca or me or other members of legal talent development. So hopefully that's helpful to some folks. But Rebecca, turning back to you for my final substantive question, what's your overall advice to a young law student or maybe someone junior in, in their career who's interested in pursuing legal? What are your thoughts? So I knew you were going to ask me this question because I have listened to your podcast and I kind of, I didn't write anything down, but I kind of had thoughts on two topics. So the first is really to be open to new career paths or opportunities that may have not been immediately obvious to you or part of your plan. I think I talked several times about what my initial plan was, which is obviously not what I'm doing today, but I feel totally fulfilled in my career and with my colleagues and with a firm that has been so supportive of the ways in which my career has pivoted when I've been here. So just be open that if you grew up thinking that you were going to be a prosecutor and living and breathing towards that end for, you know, two decades of your life, it doesn't mean that that's where you're going to be at the end of the day and and it can still be a, a happy ending. And then the second thing 
And I don't really have this one articulated as well, but it's really just to, in the same vein as being open, being like a accessible resource to anybody that needs your help. So when I was practicing as an associate, if somebody would give me an assignment and say, hey, are you, do you know how to do this? Or have you done this before? Or do you know anything about X? It's, it's perfectly okay. And you really should say no, if you don't know anything about that, or if you haven't done it before. But hopefully the next thing that you're going to say is, but I would love the opportunity. Let's work on this together or give me a day to like research some background and understand kind of how this works. And I apply that to my role here today. And as a result, like a lot of the day-to-day things that I work on maybe aren't in anything that we talked about today, Alexis, but because I can sort of see how that could be helpful to understand and maybe see how it fits into the bigger picture of the firm, I'm always going to say yes. So to anyone also who's listening who needs help with something and you're not sure that it falls squarely within talent or professional development, I'm here for you too. Well, that's my final question, which is if anybody has questions or comments and wants to reach out to you, can they find you on Foley's website and send you an email? They can, and I hope they will. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 